There are two magnificent lines in the Christian classical allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. The first line is really bold. It comes in the introduction. Bunyan declares that this book will make a traveler of thee. This book will make you a traveler. The next line is subtle, but equally powerful. The story starts, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face away from his house. This subtle observation by which we are introduced to the protagonist Christian in this book is pure gold. His face is pointed away from his own home. He's headed somewhere else. He is a traveler. I wonder if your life could be defined by a singular directional gaze. Where would that gaze ultimately be pointed? Where would it be focused? Every one of us must face other ways. We must focus our attention on mundane things every day. There's work and there's family and there's health and there's recreation and there's just simple asset management in this world of wealth that we enjoy. But if you had to define one primary focus that permeates everything else, what would it be? If you've come to a place in your personal journey, you've come to a place of faith in Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have genuinely been born again, your life orientation has taken on a pilgrim perspective. People who do not know Christ focus their gaze on the indulgence of the flesh between the bookends of birth and death. But people who are united to Jesus by faith are liberated to assume a fundamentally different orientation. Our relationship with the risen Savior who stands outside of these earthy bookends in glory fundamentally reorients our gaze. The fixed gaze of those who are united to the risen Christ is not circular. It's not just around us but it is always forward and upward. United to the risen Christ, we are citizens not merely of an earthly kingdom, but of a heavenly kingdom. That changes everything. That orients us differently than the world around us. And so our, our life focus is calibrated to that of a traveler, of a pilgrim, of people headed somewhere else. Is it clear as others look at your life that you're headed somewhere else? That this isn't really ultimately your home? That there's something more for which you live? Something beyond this world that can be touched now? This orientation, this realization of where we're headed is not theoretical. It's not peripheral. This realization is critically connected to our growth as believers and to our daily behavior in this world. So it's not just, I get it, I see where I'm going, I understand that there's something beyond the bookends of birth and death, but it actually changes the way we grow in Christ. 
It changes the decisions that we make and the behaviors that we pursue. The Apostle Paul counsels us this way in Philippians chapter 3. I invite you to the second half of this chapter as we've made our way to this to verse 12 and following today, remembering the context as Paul ends on that glorious note at the end at the middle of chapter 3 where he says my quest in life is to gain Christ verse 8 and verse 9 be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith me the unrighteous one receiving his righteousness him giving to me his standing. This is gaining Christ. And gaining Christ is continuing in my affections for him, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then there is that future gaze, that forward gaze, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's an end to this story for Paul. It's to gain that resurrection life, to gain that entrance into the presence of Christ. Now, in the situation there, in the setting, we can't put it all together. We can't know who all the players were exactly. We can't know everything that they believed and taught. But there are individuals, this brings to Paul's mind, who are preaching a false message. And he addresses them, to some degree, probably fairly subtly here, But in addressing them, he's talking to the Philippians that they would direct their life in the right way, that we would direct ours in the life way, in the right way, and that we would be watchful to this end. He wants them to understand he's not with the false teachers on this point. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect. I want you to catch this. And in verses 12 through 16... He exhorts us that in pursuit of spiritual maturity, our focus must remain forward, not backward. That is not into this life and into the perfections that some were were claiming. In pursuit of spiritual maturity, our focus must remain forward, not backward. Take that home, and we're going to work it out here in verses 12 through 16, but take that to heart. My spiritual growth in Christ is not about focusing here and now. It's not about getting things fixed in the moment. But it's really about looking forward. So to make sure they understand, he starts, verse 12, saying, I've not already obtained this. I'm not already perfect doesn't want them to draw the wrong conclusion in light of what some false teachers were claiming, but Paul was not, he's not attained spiritual perfection. He's not attained the spiritual ambitions of the list in verses 10 and 11, for instance. He's not been spiritually perfected, but, verse 12, I press on. Notice that, I press on, I run forward, I strain, the idea of the word is, I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. This is a difficult phrase to translate, and the ESV mushes over it a little bit here. It sounds so poetic. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit uh, just kind of trying to 
capture the concept. It is a little challenging, but Paul, the point is Paul's headed to destruction. In, in his sin, on his own, he's headed to destruction, but Jesus seizes a hold of Paul and rescues him. We see that in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. He rescues him so that Paul could seize a hold of salvation. That's not that Paul gains his own salvation, but that he's now on this path of salvation. Christ grabbed him so that he would grab salvation. We might picture it like the father and son in an apple orchard. And dad lifts his son up so that the son can pick an apple from the tree. Kid could never reach it. Could never jump that high to get that apple. But by being picked up by the Father, he reaches up and can grab the apple and pull it down. In a sense, that's Paul. Jesus picked me up to reach salvation. It's a one way of looking at it. He's not saying I'm earning my salvation through my own works. That's not the point of it. But he's picking me up that I may reach what he saved me to reach the resurrection of the dead, eternal life in the presence of Christ. He sees me for this reason, and now I reach it and I grab it. But please understand, I've not obtained it yet. I'm pressing on to that. I'm pressing on to reach for what Christ has rescued me for. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Please get that. And here again is a theology of Christian growth. We will never arrive in this life. Do you believe that? There's some people in this city, in our culture, and across the world who think they have. I've had people tell me this. One guy very specifically, I no longer sin. I bit my tongue wanting to ask, could I please speak with your mother? But he really believed he had reached sinless perfection. Don't buy that line. It's ridiculous. Even the Apostle Paul was still in pursuit of it. I don't consider myself to have made it my own, but one thing I do, this is what I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. That prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am pressing on. I am pursuing that to gain Christ. The pictures of a runner leaning forward and straining with all of his might, with eyes fixed forward on the finish line, and the goal is that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the call has already come at as he is converted, but he leans forward to reach that end. His focus is set to be delivered from sin, to enter the presence of Christ, to gain eternal life, to enter into the reward of God's people. This now is his pursuit in life. He gives himself to it. He's leaning and straining forward to come to that end. And Paul is revealing then here how we grow as believers. If you say, and perhaps you've come today saying, I want to grow in Christ. I want to be leaving sin behind. I, 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 just, I don't make the progress that I want to make. There's hope and there's help here in the words of Paul. He counsels us, Christians do not grow in Christ by concentrating attention on our experience of salvation. 
forgetting what's behind. I don't think he's talking about what he had gained as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I think he's talking there about what's passed in his life having been seized by Christ. Having been seized by Christ, he doesn't look backward. He forgets what's behind. Now, we fill in the right blanks. He's got no problem telling people about his conversion story. Acts 9 shows up in Paul's sermons throughout the book of Acts. It's not that. It's not that we don't look back in any way, shape, or form. But the point is we don't grow in Christ by constantly going back to the moment of our salvation, if we can pinpoint that, and seeing that as the source of growth forward. That's a way of being stymied in our Christian walk. Nor are we going to grow by looking back to past sin. There's nothing wrong with looking back to sin that we've left and confessing it and remembering it to some degree, but we don't grow by looking back to failure and to sin and even to our conversion. We grow by looking forward to the face of Christ. There are those who pursue, it seems, spiritual growth and Christian development by focusing on the past. We may need to repent of sin. We may need to acknowledge wrong. We may need to deal with that as we move forward, undoubtedly. But there are some who get fixated on, I did this wrong. I broke this law of God. Life can never be the same again. I can't believe that I did that. This took place, or this happened to me. And everything is all about what took place in the past, what was failed, what was lost. I know Paul is not specifically addressing that issue here, but he covers it when he says, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press forward. And there is help for us there. The growing Christian is always focused forward. Again, not saying we don't think of our conversion, not saying we don't deal with sin in the past, not saying that the harms that have been done to us are insignificant, but we're not going to grow there. We're going to grow as we look forward to Christ and what He is doing to transform us into His likeness one step at a time until we meet Him. That's where our nose needs to be pointed if we're going to grow. Verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. This orientation is important. It is connected to maturity. Believers who are mature in the faith will adopt this future gaze, and you'll find this consistently among them. They're not overtaken by what has happened in the past. They don't stand on the laurels of their success in the Christian walk, and their conversion, though they rejoice in it, is kind of how you look at the day of your birth. You're not overwhelmed by it. You're not focused on it overly much. You're thankful for it. You praise God for it. But it's your birthday. Now, of course, there's some differences. When we're converted, we remember it. And again, it can be a dramatic conversion, such as with Paul. But he's saying maturity comes as we recognize we must be a traveler with a focus forward in what is to come. 
So let those who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. We do look back. We do look at sin. We do look at failure on some level. And God will make clear to you in time by His grace where you're focused. We need to give one another some time to be patient. But we do need to remember to look forward and not backward. Verse 16 added to that. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. That is, as we've made progress in our walk with Christ, let's hold on to what we've gained, not fall back, not slide back in our Christian growth. If the goal is our final transformation in Christ's presence, then any ground we've made in pursuit of Christ should be held and not lost. There's a little girl learning to play the piano, and she only played with one hand. What happens if she rests on the laurels of her last good recital? I've kind of arrived. I can play with one hand and the teacher commended me and people told me afterwards what a wonderful job I did at the recital. I'm good. Is she going to learn to play the piano with any excellence at all? Of course not. What happens if she just stops practicing because she doesn't want to practice anymore she's going to lose what she has she's going to fall backward what happens if she says i can only play with one hand i can't play with two hands it's impossible to play with two hands i'll never make it i'm a failure i'm not getting it done she's not going to go anywhere what she needs to do is hold what she has and keep pressing forward and little by little piece by piece she begins to learn to play more than one note at a time, with two hands, and perhaps becomes very good because she holds what she has and keeps moving forward. Christian, this is where sin is so invasive and harmful. When we begin to walk in a pattern of sin, we begin to lose what we've gained. And it's not a simple equation. We don't have to work ourselves back up step by step to a certain place. But we understand the concept. We need to live up to what God has shown us. We need to live up to where we are. And we can't slip back into sin and into unfaithful patterns. And when we do, you can pretty much guarantee that's where you're going to get fixated, is on the past. Is on something you've gained in the past or on something you've, that's happened wrong or something that you've done wrong. And the focus gets all oriented there and we lose sight of Christ. We lose sight of where we're going. And we begin to, like this girl in her piano efforts, to just slide backwards and not make the progress forwards. We have to think progressively to set our focus on what we know God wants us to become. We know what God is doing with us as He saved us. Where He's taking me, where He's leading me ultimately, needs to direct how I view every moment and where I'm at. Focusing on that future, focusing on meeting Christ, I grow and I hold on to what I've gained. Getting my focus on this earth Getting my focus on other things here is going to lead me backwards. Now at verse 17, there's a subtle shift in what is a consistent theme throughout this section. Verse 17, the focus shifts slightly from the way of sanctification, a focus forward, to the moral choices we make as believers. 
Very related, but there's a subtle shift here. So first of all, in pursuit of spiritual maturity, our focus must remain forward, not backward. Secondly, in pursuit of ethical living, our focus must be upward, not downward. As we pursue ethical living, that is righteous living, our focus must be upward, not downward. Notice verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So this is my example. This is the way that I'm striving to live life. Follow me. Imitate me. That's not a word of pride. It kind of sounds, it might hit us that way. But what he's saying is, I'm living this way. Live this way. Join me. Come with me in focusing forward. Keep your eyes, keep your eyes on those who walk according to that example. And now he contrasts in this section two profoundly different patterns of behavior based on the location of our gaze. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Despite the immense efforts that scholars have invested in trying to figure out who these people are, we're really not able to know ultimately. And there's so much discussion about who they are. I'm going to spare you all of that. All we need to know is what motivated their daily behavior. And there's four descriptions. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Whether they claimed to be Christians or weren't Christians. Whether they were Jews or Gentile believers. Whether libertarian or legalistic we don't know but here we do know and this is what we need to apply verse 19 their end is destruction our focus is to be fixed on the upward call these false religionists are headed for destruction that is a genuine follower of christ is running uphill to a beautiful villa on the mountaintop these individuals are running downhill over a cliff Secondly, their God is their belly. That may refer to gluttony, but I don't think only. The reference is probably considerably broader. They live for their gut, we might say. That doesn't mean somebody who just eats too much. The focus of their gaze is on their sensual, self-centered impulses. They cater to the dictates of the flesh, is the point. And their glory, thirdly, is in their shame. Their earthbound focus leads them to glory in what will one day become a matter of shame. Whether that's their ill-gotten gain or their idolatrous worship of family, their sexual exploitation, their self-promoting pride, whatever it is, ultimately it will be their shame. They think it's their glory. And fourthly, with minds set on earthly things. Their look is downward, here. They look around, not forward. They look to earth, not to heaven. Again, it's their gaze and their orientation that is off track. So we will grow as we look forward in the Christian faith, but we will make the right choices also as we look upward. And we look to where we're headed, not simply to what is around us in the life where we are. And that upward look is laid out here for us now in verse 20 and following. Here's the contrast. You see the word but. But our citizenship, and we could almost underline that word our, this is their focus, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
There's a clear connection there. You see that at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Their minds are set on what? Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our focus is on heavenly things. Our gaze is upward in anticipation of the return of Christ, not downward toward the indulgence of the flesh. Our citizenship is not on this earth, but in glory with Jesus. And that truth alters everything that we do, all the choices that we make. We do not lie because we are citizens of a kingdom grounded in absolute truth. We do not steal because our sovereign Lord assigns all stewardships and we are inheritors of eternal riches. We do not harm or hate or discriminate because we serve the giver of life and the lover of all people. We are citizens of another home, of another place. Verse 20 continues, And from it, from this home, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That is, Jesus took on our flesh that we might take on His glory. You see the phrase here, the lowly body. Some of us know what that means more than others. We know it's a lowly body. The Greek word is a body of humiliation, of weakness, of incapacity, of fatigue and the like. Christ will transform this lowly body to reflect the glory of His resurrection body. The only picture we really have of that is Jesus at the transfiguration. We don't really know what it looks like, what it feels like, what it is ultimately, but our body transformed like Christ. If there's any doubt that God has the power to subject all things to His will, He will subject death, He will subject disease, He will subject decay and all human debility because He has the power that enables Him to do so. And I know, um, indeed, as Rich prayed here earlier, there are those of you who come today in pain, in physical pain. For some of you, it comes and goes, and today might be an on day, today might be an off day. There are others of you who deal with pain that never stops. You're in it constantly. There are those that are facing the ravages of disease, maybe even though you don't feel it. It's eating away at you. There are those who are just facing the ravages of time in our lowly bodies. Even those of you who are young, you face weakness. You know when you're out of steam. Maybe it's starting a race and your knees are shaking and you just don't feel strong. We know this lowly body, even in our youth, But for many, there's so much suffering that comes into it. Here is the future that God lays out for us. 
He will transform your body of humiliation. Jesus is going to do that. There's a day coming when seeing Him and transformed into His glory, there will be no more pain. There will be no more disease. There will be no more fatigue. No colds, cramps, or sores. Our bodies will become everything that we ever thought they could be. And isn't that why on some level sin set aside? Isn't that why on some level we complain? You'd say, why do these... I mean, if an alien watching from space would say, why do these people complain? Don't they get it? They're always sick and hurting and in trouble and falling apart. Why do they think they shouldn't be? Because we shouldn't be. We know we shouldn't be. We know deep down inside of us that this isn't how we were made. We were made to have unmeasurable strength to be delivered from pain, to never know what it was to be sick. That's not a fantasy, people of God. That is God's promise. That's His promise. We're moving to that day, and it's grounded in His power. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, wrote, And finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has been found and probably ever will be. Christian Sigmund Freud never met Jesus. You have. And if you've met Him, His resurrection power is going to change your lowly body. That changes how I deal with pain. That changes how I deal with disease. That is there for my sanctification, that I would not look to the past, but look to the future, that I would not look simply down, but that I'd look up. That I'd look up to what is coming. I can endure an immensely greater amount of pain when I have my eyes fixed on Christ and His transforming promises. We have so much else. His grace that is sufficient for every trial. But this, one aspect of how we deal with it, we fix our gaze upward. So Paul finishes verse 1 of chapter 4, should go with, I think, what precedes. It also flows into what follows, but I think it's a better conclusion to chapter 3, and most would think that. Therefore, my brothers, he says, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in these promises. Stand firm in this future. Know that Christ has saved you for this, to deliver you from this pain and to transform your lowly body into His glorious body. All that He said here, stand firm in that. Hold on, as verse 16 says, hold true to what you have attained. Don't slip back. By fixing our gaze on the hope that is ahead, we can stand firm. Fixate on past achievements, and you'll be spiritually anemic. Fixate on past achievements, and you'll be weak. Fixate on your past sins and failures, and it'll be debilitating. Fixate on what you want but can't get, 
and were never promised by God, and there'll be no growth in it. But focus on the gratification of the flesh and earth-oriented life goals, and you'll be filled with debilitating emptiness. So we're brought here, each of us, to consider the focus of our gaze. For those that have not been united by faith to Christ, Christ does not live within you. There's not been, and there is no sense that you've been born again by Jesus. Please understand, no one was born a traveler. By birth, we're oriented to live between the bookends of our birth and our death, serving our own sensual and mundane interests. There's no light on our horizon, only murky mystery, and so we keep our heads down, and we swirl in circles, and we live just to live. But there's good news here today for you. If that's where you are, there's good news here. That's not life and you don't need to stay there. You don't need to be ignoring what is coming in the future. Afraid of it. Thinking that the end of death is the end for you. What you're doing is coasting downhill. That is, you're fitting into the world around with everybody else who simply sees this life and is heading over a cliff because they just don't want to deal with Christ and the life that is to come. You're caught in the vortex of just a living death. But here is the good news that we see permeating this section and this entire book. And that is that Jesus who will stand as your judge, is also here today to meet you as your Savior. By His grace, the judge who will meet you in eternity is the Savior who will rescue you from the sin that does not see Him as life's ultimate joy. That doesn't see transformation into the likeness of Christ as what I live for. To say that Christ is my life? No. That is sin. That is rebellion against the Creator. That is running away from the life that He creates for His people. Turn from that and trust in His way. And the power that lifted Him from the grave is a power that can change you and give you life that matters. Jesus died to pay the penalty of the sinner, to stand in the sinner's place and to pay that cost, to take on the judgment of God. And He rose from the dead in victory over death so that this death that we all face is not final, but we enter into His resurrection life and are rescued eternally from it. If that's true, and indeed it is, and the empty tomb is the evidence of it, if that is indeed true, that really will reorient your life. And if that frightens you, then what you're holding on to is the idol that's like a cannonball as you're trying to swim in the ocean. It's sinking you. It's taking you down. It's drowning you. You are being killed by life. Your life. But Christ 
gives us His eternal life. We enter into that resurrection as we come to turn from our sin and our own self-centered ways to trust in Him. He gives us that life as a gift. Remember verse 9 of this chapter. For those of us who have placed faith in Christ in this way, who have been regenerated within our spirits, who are alive to this truth and long to be in the presence of Christ, this message from God reminds us of a perspective of life that must increasingly rivet our focus and direct our gaze. So I bring us back again to verse 16 and say, hold true to what you've attained. Don't slip back. Don't begin to live life on your own terms, directing yourself in your own way against God's purposes. Don't live in rebellion against His call to you in any way, shape, or form. But take on this fundamental orientation. Revivify it. uh, Strengthen it. We are travelers headed somewhere else. We are citizens of a city on the mount that gleams with light as we slog along down here through the shadows. We know this of ourselves, but our face is set away from this home to our eternal home. What does that look like? We could spend a long time considering the implications, but a few ideas. Our bucket list will not be all important. Have a bucket list, that's good. Knock some of them off. But you don't care if you get it all done. You've got so much more coming. It means we're going to travel light. That is, we don't live a life that's seeking to accumulate as much as possible, to hoard around us everything we can grasp and hold on to it. I have a, a fairly slippery hand can give this away and give that away for the cause of Christ because there's a future I'm headed to. The trials of life and death itself will be kept in perspective. There will be a spirit of endurance through death because I know this isn't the end. I've seen people grieve who are absolutely convinced that this life is all. And I don't ever want to be around such a person again. It's horrifying. It's ugly. They're they're slipping away from, from this life and that's all there is. For the believer, we don't look at death that way. There's a spirit of endurance through it. It's painful. We grieve, but not without hope. How will it look? We will leave some things undone in this world. Go back to our bucket list, but looking at it from a different standpoint, some of the tasks that need to get done, some of the goals that we have set, I'm not going to lay on my deathbed and say, well, I didn't get that done and this done and this done. My life stinks. I'm going to look to Christ and say, you can have all that. I get the ultimate reward of knowing Him and entering into His presence. It just changes the way we die. It changes the way we relate to the church. We realize that the church is a ministry calibrated to help us retain an eternal focus. The church's ministry is all about verse 16. It's all about holding on to what we've attained. And it's all about a forward focus from this point on. It helps us, does it not, to adjust our thinking from a world that's screaming at us, that's saying, keep your thoughts downward. This is it. Get all you can get. 
be filled with depression if you don't get what you want. We come to the assembly of God's people, we hear God's word, and we're reminded this isn't the end. There's so much more. We're traveling somewhere else. Attending the church then is an exercise in keeping this eternal focus. Serving is an exercise in keeping this eternal focus. Investing talent and resources and time and money for a cause that does not seem to pay in this life is an act of faith. At least as others would look at it, why do you give your money away to something that has no tangible benefit? Why do you pour out your labor serving a cause that we can't touch or see or understand has any use at all? Now we recognize all of the use that's there, but the world in which we live, they don't see that. So serving Christ and investing in His cause in this earth is an act of faith. Those who have this eternal focus will hold life loosely, even the sorrows that we face, how you deal with that pain, how you deal with that disease, how you deal with that troubled relationship, how you deal with that disappointment, that failure, all of that is affected by the fact that ultimately I'm attaining the resurrection of the dead. I'm rich in Christ. All is settled, all is fulfilled as I slog along step by step, day by day, in this challenging, challenging world. It is, at the end of the day, a perspective that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is the gain of death? It's a new body. This lowly body gone. Sin gone. It is certainly that. But ultimately, it is Jesus Himself. It is entering into the presence of Christ and knowing Him forever. Do we live like that? Do we live like that is our ultimate bucket list item? That all the other ones are limited and temporal. They may be good, but they're not all important. This is all important. That I meet my Savior, Jesus Christ, and enter into His resurrection power for all eternity glorified to gain christ is to gain everything live like it let's bow for prayer lord i confess in my own life the failure to think with such hope and such focus, how easily I'm swayed, how easily we find ourselves torn away to the things of this life as if they were all important. And we deal with problems, huge challenges and difficulties. We don't minimize them, but we also recognize that we don't put them in proper perspective as we should. We ask for your help. We ask that that future gaze would transform every trial and heartache that we face, that would help us to persevere in the faith. We pray for those who do not know this future focus, who are not a traveler, but like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, are loaded with a bag of bricks, a bag of sin, 
that's not been lifted by Christ. I pray that you'd lift that bag today, that you'd lift away the guilt of sin. And I pray that those who know not Christ would enter into this victory. But for all here who do, may we rejoice, may we sing and pray and celebrate, and may we live life with a focus forward and a focus that's upward pursuing our Savior and His eternal grace. Help us to this end, we pray, through Christ.